Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good evening, children of the night. As promised, we will be returning to a more, shall we say, vanilla tales to terrify for a little while. Our trip south was completed, and we will return to the cabin in the Commonwealth of Virginia, at least for a little while before the wanderlust sets in again. Although, we won't be returning this week. As I'm recording this, the northern part of Virginia sits under about two feet of snow, maybe a bit more or less, depending on where you live. In fact, most parts between my knees and shoulders are pretty sore from shoveling. Now... Our listeners from further west and north may be getting their daily exercise of eye-rolling hearing about two feet of snow, but it's unexpected for Virginians. When I lived in Denver, they had great snow removal infrastructure. When the snow was falling, the trucks were already rolling. In Ohio, they spent most of the first snow trying to figure out who has the keys to the plows. And just to make sure my commentary about snow wasn't too far off topic, if you want to talk about terrifying, well... Virginia drivers during that first snow, particularly. Well, I suppose it's survival of the fittest around here. Let's get on to our fiction. Our first story comes from Gary Hewitt. Gary Hewitt is a raconteur who lives in a quaint little village in Kent. He has written two novels, which are currently being edited. His writing does tend to veer away from what you might expect. He has had several short stories published, as well as the occasional poem. He enjoys both writing prose and poetry. His style of writing tends to feature edgy characters and can be extremely dark. Some of his influences are James Herbert, Stephen King, Bulgakov, Tolkien, but to name a few. He is also a proud member of the Hazlitt Arts Center Writers Group in Maidstone, which features an eclectic group of very talented writers. He has a website featuring his published works, and a link will be in the show notes. And now, Gary Hewitt's The Dead Collector. Marlboro Muse, 1966. 
Simon squeezed his car into a tiny gap outside the derelict warehouse. Three familiar vehicles sat nearby. Freddy told him to be on time. The outside of the building allowed no visitors to gaze inside. Access was limited to a rusted green door. A rusting sign read Arthur's Bottles. One streetlight provided the sole source of illumination. Simon straightened his trench coat and swept his hair back. He pressed his gray suit several times before he left. Freddy expected his team to be smart for business. He heard a muffled yelp from inside. Simon knew the winner of the treatment. He inhaled the stench of the Thames and knocked. Simon, we were beginning to think you weren't coming. Johnny Albion ushered him inside. He was called to rake and charged with discovering who had ripped Freddy off. I wouldn't miss this for the world. Poor old Bert thought he could keep it to himself, did he? He's a soppy cunt. I don't know how he thought he'd get away with it. He led Simon to the end of a musty corridor. Several containers with handwritten fuel signs lay to the side. Simon helped Freddy arrange a few bonfires over the years. Johnny opened a door, and Simon stepped into the latest grim spectacle. Simon visited Freddy's place many times, yet the blood opera always unsettled him. Freddy's latest opus tested his resolve more than ever. A wooden chair waited in the center of the room. A naked, bound man sat and mumbled nonsense from bloated lips. Freddy and his two henchmen stood to the side, eager to explore their victim's capacity for torment. Freddy was draped in a navy suit with a red carnation, his face lined with furrows of concentration. Where's my twenty K? Norman, make this prick talk. Norman jabbed Bert in the ribs. Bert vomited an outbreak of cod and chips. Simon, come to watch the show? It'd be rude not to, Freddy. This prick had the nerve to say you took the money. Can you believe that? Norman's hand smacked Bert's cheek. Fresh blood ran into his stomach. He said what? Simon took his turn on the abattoir. He kicked Freddy's prisoner in the groin. Oh, cobblers, I've got clarets on my shoes. Bert glanced at his new attacker through puffy eyes. He hid the pain for a few seconds. He cursed Simon through his shattered teeth. You know you've got it. Norman silenced him. Fresh ivory flew from Bert's mouth. He wavered between pain and unconsciousness. Bert, I'd never steal from family. He spat the words into Bert's face. Freddy's other henchman seized a rusty pipe. He smashed the weapon into Bert's skull. Steve, you daft cunt! Don't kill him yet! fumed Freddy. Wake him up. Put some whiskey in his cuts. Freddy was hysterical. Twenty grand was far too much to lose. Steve poured liquid into the wounds. Norman inserted a lighted cigarette into Bert's cheek. He never stirred. Bert watched from above. His spirit shuddered when Freddy battered his lifeless body. Freddy seized the pipe and impaled his victim to the chair. Bert wanted to go to the light. He couldn't leave. Simon poured fuel over his corpse. He couldn't believe no one could see through Simon's lies. Freddy struck a match. Bert's wraith cried for revenge. Not again. Alan pulled the duvet around him. He studied his watch and cursed the time of 10.30 p.m., he punched the remote on and raised the volume. Alan set the temperature to a high level, yet the room remained cold. His heart and breath were stifled by an unwanted chilly mantle. He alone heard the screams. The light bulb flickered and died. That's a new one. He spoke into the dark. He was sure someone listened. 
Alan used to be scared. He adapted in fear, lost to anger. He needed to rise at stupid o'clock. Can't you leave me alone? I need my sleep, and who the hell are you anyway? The ghost did not respond. The cold dissipated. Here we go again, said Alan. The room's temperature rose. Alan sweated inside the furnace. He almost gagged at the stink of burnt pork. The nausea and heat dispersed. He would get pissed tomorrow. Maybe he wouldn't get disturbed. Al, get four points of best in, mate. Alan always seemed to get his wallet out first. Four men conversed about work, football, and sex. None of them were married, although Charlie was under the thumb. And got yourself a bird, Al? Or are you turning faggot on us, mate? Alan ignored the laughter. Yeah, I'll bring some brass back to my flat, but tell her to clear off before half ten because of a ghost. Kevin raised his eyebrows. Al, that's a bollocks excuse. The only thing you're scared of is getting a dick out. Mind you having seen how small you are, I can see why. Charlie and Colin doubled up in laughter. Alan stared into his glass. He wished he'd stayed home. I'm only joking, mate. Listen, I reckon we should go over to your gaff and scare your spook away. We need one of those squeezy boards or whatever they are. Alan laughed this time. Squeezy boards? It's called a Ouija board, you daft cunt. I knew that. Why don't we go around and say hello to it? I bet it's called Casper. Where are we going to get a Ouija board? What do you suggest, Kev? Kevin scratched his head. Why don't we make our own? It's only a board, glass, and a few letters, said Colin. I reckon you might have something there, Call. Let's finish up and get some jars from the offy. What time is it? About ten, answered Charlie. We better get a shift on or we'll miss your ghost. Come on, boys, drink up. They necked the pints, downed a short each, and left for Alan's flat. Alan couldn't believe how many loggers they bought. Kev, are you getting some more of your mates over or something? Kevin shook his head. This'll soon go. Charlie will drink all himself if we ain't careful. Kev pointed at Charlie's belly. Oi, what's that supposed to mean? Well, you wouldn't have to worry about drowning, would you? Hey, this'll do. Colin dumped the loggers out of the box. He scrawled A through Z along the top of the cardboard. He placed an empty can in the center. Is anybody out there? Call, you're having a gaff if you think this is going to work. It's almost half ten. Does anyone have any better ideas? Just place your hand on the can and ask if anyone is out there, insisted Colin. Call, it sounds lame to me. Try it, or are you bottling it? All right, soppy. I'll talk to your can. Hello, is anyone out there? The can did not stir. You're taking us for a bunch of mugs, Al. I'm not winding you up. He's always doing weird things at this time of night. Alan did not respond. The can moved to the letter A. Did you see that? gasped Kevin. I told you it would work. The can continued to move and spelt Albert. Al, write this down, ordered Kevin. He added the surname Herodine. Albert Herodine? Well, hello, I suppose. Do you prefer Al or Bert? joked Charlie. The can spelt Bert. Call, you're the expert. How long does this go on for? Colin shrugged. I remember doing this with some mates when we left school. It scared the shit out of us. Nice time to let us know. He wants help, said Alan. Bert, I can't see what we can do for your mate. 
Kevin fooled no one with his bravado. Bert asked Kevin to touch the can. Kevin's fingers grasped cold metal. His friends spoke, yet he struggled to hear their words. He couldn't remove his hand. He was overcome with intense heat, as though he was being boiled alive. His eyes bubbled, his cheek melted, and his nose blistered. He lost connection and wondered who Simon was. Kev, wake up, said Alan. He ain't dead, is he? asked Charlie. Don't be stupid, he's passed out. Chuck some cold water in his face. Kevin's eyes flickered. Behave yourselves, I've already had a wash. Kevin's relieved friend helped him sit up. Charlie threw him a beer. Sod that, mate, I've got a banging headache. Kevin struggled to concentrate. His mind swam with strange memories. Sorry, lads, I'm off home. He rose on unsteady legs. Alan asked if he wanted a cab. Nah, the walk will do me good. I'll see you a lot on Monday. He stumbled on every curb in Bermondsey on the way home. His headache raged. He needed his bed. Kevin poured a glass of water and slammed his eyes shut. He dreamt of a man on fire. A man in a blue suit with a red carnation popped in the breast pocket, screamed at this man. His fist slammed into the victim's face. Another man laughed at the burning man. He'd never met the man before, yet he knew his name was Simon, just like he knew the man ablaze was Bert. Freddy and his colleagues left the man to burn. Their laughter echoed in the execution chamber. Bert disintegrated. Kevin fell into a deeper slumber. Kevin rubbed his eyes and didn't remember logging onto the web. The sun hadn't risen, and he ached for more sleep. He typed Simon Banger into the search bar. He scrolled and the sites were all American. He added the words UK and Bermondsey. He found a site for a director of a soft drinks company and an address. Kevin clicked print. He collapsed onto the sofa and allowed his eyes to close. He woke four hours later. Hello, can I speak to Mr. Banger, please? Who's calling? He's very busy at the moment. The female spoke in a harsh voice. Kevin imagined a dizzy blonde on the wrong side of thirty with too much makeup and jewelry. I appreciate that. However, we do share a mutual interest. Sorry, you need to tell me what it's about and who are you? My name's Roger Ennessy from the Southwark Gazette. We're doing a feature about successful businessmen in our community. We'd love to write an article about Mr. Banger and the opportunities he has created. It would be an excellent exposure for his company. Can you hold, please? Of course. He knew Banger wouldn't be able to resist. Hello? The voice preached far more confidence than thirty years ago. Hello, is this Mr. Banger? It is. What can I do for you? My paper wants to interview important and successful people from the borough. Your portfolio is exactly what we're looking for. We'd love to hear your story. If you'd like, we could meet up to discuss the issue further. You've intrigued me, Roger. I could arrange for this evening, as I am available. How about 8 p.m.? In the Romney? That'd be grand. By the way, mine's a large cognac. I'll make sure it's on the bar for you. Okay, we'll see you tonight. Thank you, Mr. Banger. I'm looking forward to it. Double cognac and a pint of Stella, please. The barman obliged. Kevin settled down with a tabloid. He poured a measure of white powder into the short. He turned to the crossword and began to kill fifteen minutes. He wrote in serendipity when a gray-haired gentleman parked himself on a neighboring chair. Roger. 
Kevin offered his hand. I've got you a double cognac, Mr. Banger. Banger raised his hand. Call me Simon. There's no need for formality. Kevin allowed his guest to talk about himself for ten minutes. Banger began to slur his words when he spoke of his vision for the company and its employees. Simon, are you okay? We could do this interview another time if you're feeling a bit poorly. I can take you home if you'd like. Kevin helped Simon to his feet. Come on, let's get you out of here. Simon gulped in fresh air. His eyes struggled to stay alert. His companion led him to his Ford. Simon collapsed into the passenger seat. Have you got the 20K? Banger recalled a derelict memory. He wondered who Kevin had spoken to. He couldn't find words to warn off his chauffeur, for he lost his hold on consciousness. Simon heard only the frantic rise and fall of his breath. He stared into a veil of black. He shivered. Ropes bit into his skin and tethered him to a chair. He gulped hard, aware he wore no clothes. Many a long year passed since the last treatment took place. Kevin studied his prey. Kevin seized a pair of ear guards from Simon's head and tossed them on the floor. It's a bit chilly tonight. Simon couldn't reply. Oops, I'm sorry about that. I forgot to take this off. Kevin ripped duct tape away from Simon's tender lips. Simon cried out. Don't you know who I am, you cunt? You're going to pay for this. I can promise you that. Calm down, Simon. I know you're Frankie's little brother. I bet you don't know who I am, though. Simon wondered how this captor knew so much. You can't figure it out? You should never have lived to be sixty-two. Kevin pulled off Simon's blind. His victim struggled to sudden brightness. You're off your head. There's no reporter, and my name's not Roger. However, I do know, and old friend of yours. What's your fucking problem? He screamed. Twenty grand, yelled Kevin. Look, you're not making sense. You've lost me. Simon tried to regain his composure. Do you remember Bert? Simon blanched. Bert. Simon, let me help you out. Kevin removed a mirror from the table. He twisted Simon's face to stare into the glass to witness Kevin's reflection. The face, though, did not belong to a young man. Instead, the image of a long-dead companion smiled in triumph. That's impossible. I don't know what trickery you're up to, but son, you better stop this right now. Kevin silenced Simon with a punch, loaded with thirty years of malice. You stitched me up. You promised me we'd be in the clear with Freddy. Didn't quite happen that way, though, did it? I was young and stupid. I should have done things different. I got scared of Freddy once he tumbled. He got ripped off. Kevin seized Simon's air. Different. Your family tortured me to death and set me on fire. Kevin walked behind the chair. An engine sputtered into life. Ever seen one of these? Simon pulled away when a grinder brushed past his nose. His bladder failed and dampened his leg. Oh dear, you've pissed yourself. We'll have to make sure that doesn't happen again. Simon jerked his head and writhed in his chair, yet his bonds remained in place. The grinder bit into a gray forest between Simon's legs. His sex was carved apart. He screamed over and over. Gristle, filleted flesh, and blood spat in all directions. Kevin did not stop until his weapon sliced into wood. Simon was hoarse with pain and emptied his stomach. Hurt, doesn't it? You know how I feel after all you bastards did it to me. I bet the sight of all this blood and guts is a bit much for you. 
Simon nodded. His thoughts were racked in delirium and blood. I can take this horrible spectacle away from you, old friend. Kevin returned to the table and grabbed a hammer and a nail. I, I. Kevin held the nail in front of Simon's eyeball. Simon tried to shut his eyes. Masking tape held them open. The hammer swung and metal pierced soft membrane. His vision vanished and a new wave of agony overwhelmed him. One down, one to go. The hammer swung again and Simon fell into permanent night. Kevin smashed the hammer into Simon's unprotected face several times. The savagery destroyed any chance of recognition. Simon was bound to this place. He knew Bert couldn't wait to greet him. How's your cage, Simon? Horrible, isn't it? The beauty is you get to stay in limbo and I can escape. Kevin picked, poured fuel over the wrecked corpse. Kevin struck a match. He walked out and a cold breeze flew past him into the charnel house. He glanced over his shoulder and by the burning man the faint outline of a man could be seen. The figure bent and whispered into the dead man's ears. Kevin heard silent words reverberate in his mind. We're even now, my old mucker. Well, and truly even. That was Gary Hewitt's The Debt Collector, as read by, well, me. I won't spend any time talking about myself, but link to my personal page will be in the show notes. Our second story of the night comes from Elam Lerman. Mr. Lerman lives in Edinburgh with his girlfriend Alexis and his cat Boris. He is a writer of short stories, most of which can be read in the bibliography on his website. Link will be in the show notes. And aspiring novelist. Writing has been a part of his life since teenage years when he produced half of a terrible comedy science fiction novel on an old Olivetti typewriter at the age of 19. In March of 2008, he began writing in earnest with short stories being his main focus and with the intention of submitting as many as possible and hopefully making a life out of it. Most of his work so far has been short fiction in the dark-slash-weird-slash-speculative fiction genre, and he is currently undertaking research for a novel, which will be his fifth attempt after three unfinished and one completed but terrible first draft. The story we will be hearing tonight will be Unpicking the Stitches, which appeared in Shizine. We're halfway through a group therapy session when I lean over and poke Lawrence in the cheek. He looks tired. His eyes are slack buttonholes. I can't resist, so I push the index and middle fingers of my right hand into his eye socket, all the way to the knuckle. Inside him, there is nothing but cloth, as I expected. Bunched up yards of coarse hospital linen, it makes my fingers itchy, like burying them deep in a pile of granddad's offcuts. Lawrence doesn't seem to care, just sits there, disinterested, and lets me as though nothing is really happening. Nobody else in the group appears to notice. On the bus home, the feel of the cloth stays with me. It tells me something about Lawrence. I'm not sure what. That he's spent his whole life medicated, in and out of one kind of hospital or another, or that he's sterile and uncomfortable, 
he's the only boy in the group. He's still as much of a mystery to me as the few people here on the bus, squashed up on their seats, staring out of the window, at the advertising, into their mobile phones, anywhere but at each other. I tried to delve beneath the surface of Lawrence, and I found what I always knew would be there, but I don't feel any closer to him than I do to these people on the bus. They have dead stares. Their eyes move around, wet, reflecting the sick yellow bus light. Just underneath the surface lies cloth. I know that now. But who knows what they're really seeing or thinking? Their cloth might tell me more about Lawrence's. I imagine what theirs might be like much more clearly than before. The stained silk brocade of old wedding dresses, crumpled brown overalls, greasy with engine oil stains, or the pinned-down, perfectly creased stiffness of gabardine. Grandad used to tell me, Every person is an island, Sylvia, and the sea in between is treacherous to navigate. Yesterday I tried to imagine how he might have looked inside his bare black coffin. Like one of his mannequins, waxy and staring. Perhaps dressed up in a 100% wool suit, worsted, charcoal, double-breasted. For the great bank manager in the sky, that's the granddad I knew. Yet, with him being Jewish... He would have gone into the ground in nothing but a white burial shawl. No embalming. Just a good wash all over. There were plenty of people at the funeral. Distant family members, trade colleagues, and old customers in varying shades of black. No one close left anymore. Just me. I get off the bus and consider a bag of chips but can't face the greasy glare of the obese man who works in there. He stares at me like I'm a fish he wants to batter. I picture him stuffed to the ears with vegetable oil-soaked aprons, the balled-up cloth of his life, smelling of flowered cod and covered in fat burns, constantly warm with the heavy reek of the chip shop. Inside my flat... I stroke the old ridge on my forearm. Remember the bite of the blade as it split the skin. The sting of rising blood. Grandad's pale face. Taxi to the hospital. Don't get blood on the back seat, was all the driver could say. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
it. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Say, the shifting in and out of consciousness, heavy one second, then light as chiffon floating on the breeze. They sewed me up with fifteen stitches black thread like dead insects woven into my flesh. After a day, the itching drove me insane. So I unpicked the sewn-up wound, stitch by stitch, wondering if the curtains of skin on my arm would draw back to reveal secrets within. The glistening ribbons of blood made me pass out, and I woke back up in the hospital, the nurse sewing me up again. I fall asleep thinking of Lawrence, not of his dirty blonde hair like frayed rope, or his thin, androgynous body under black t-shirts and blue denim. Instead, as I pass into dream, I recall exactly the itchy feel of linen against the pads of my fingers, and I want to know more about him and others. Unravel the cloth and see the cut of their love and hate. Unpick their stitches and find out their secrets. Grandad was wrong about cloth. He said there was no mystery about it. It held no secrets. But it takes on the secrets of the wearer cloth surrounds us throughout life, goes with us to our death, into the moist, living ground. Lawrence waits for me in a doorway next to the chip shop. He doesn't like waiting in the street, says it's like being adrift in a river, naked and sinking. Hi, Sylvia, he says, not looking me in the eye. His hands are thrust deep into the pockets of his gray-hooded top. He stands stiff, braced against the potential bad weather. Still want to go for a walk? It's a nice day. The sky is a vaulted ceiling of low gray cloud. I wonder if he wants to talk about what happened in group the other night. It would be a shame not to. You don't fancy just going back to yours, watch a film or something? Okay. We go back to my flat, sit on the bed in my room, and watch a DVD of some horror film. White-teethed, pert American teenagers getting eviscerated. Once it finishes... Lawrence turns to me and takes my hand. His palm is dry, 
a little swollen from the humid weather. I should feel something. Excited. Happy. Scared. All I feel is his heartbeat, chirping away in his wrist, and I want to know what's beneath. Not just beneath his clothes, but deep inside, who he is, what he sees, how he thinks. Why is that not possible? It's ironic, he says, that we should meet at a group for social anxiety. What did you think of the session last night? I ask, hoping he'll understand what I really mean. It's difficult. Nice to know others feel the same, though, you know? But how do you know they feel the same? I'm sure you feel the same. Every sound in the flat is magnified in the moment he looks me right in the eyes. The tick of Grandad's old mantle clock. The creak of the pipes as someone turns a tap on somewhere. Our expectant breaths. What is he seeing in there? Can he see more than I do? He's this close to me. So close that I can see the gauzy light from the curtains behind me reflected in his eyes. I hope I haven't got bad breath or smell odd. He looks away suddenly. I can't look people in the eye, he says. Not normally. It's like I know what people are thinking about me. What are they thinking? They're judging me, my clothes, the way I walk. He looks up again. His eyes search mine, pupils flitting back and forth. Not you, though, Sylvia. You're the only one I can stand looking at me. He says he knows what people are thinking. But I doubt it. His eyes are like doors to me. I want to see him as something more. But I have to go deeper. I reach forward and slide my fingers into his right eye socket. The cloth is there, just at my fingertips. So I tease it towards me. His other eye glances around the room nonchalantly, flicking up to look at me for a second. He gives me a nervous, thin smile. I pinch the cloth between my index and middle fingers and pull The linen is the same coarse, thick hospital bedsheet. There is so much of it in there. Yards of it. Years of it. White tiled wards in waiting rooms with plastic chairs. Last year's dog-eared fashion magazines on the table. Tick-box medical history forms. Bottles of pills on the bedside table. Before I pull the cloth out into the open, my chest tightens. Guilt, raw and humbling. I pull my fingers back and realize I'm only doing what he thinks everyone else is doing. Judging him. 
Are you going to kiss me or not? he asks. This morning, after it's all done, I desperately want to visit Grandad's grave. But there won't be a stone yet, not for almost another year. It'll just be a mound of freshly dug earth. I yearn for the dark corners of his tailor's shop, where I used to hide downstairs underneath the table he worked on, scratching my elbows on the unsanded wood beams that supported the shop floor above. The walls were racked with rolls of cloth from floor to ceiling. The cloth smelled sharp, acidic, new. I spent most of the time down there I wasn't at school. Grandad had looked after me as long as I can remember. I would watch him from the dusty stone floor, my fingers picking threads out of the old carpet runners. He used discs of tailor's chalk and serrated pinking shears. A tape measure was permanently draped around his neck, pins in his waistband, glasses perched on his bulbous nose. He taught me to hand sew, but I was useless at it. Kept stabbing myself with the needle. His sewing was that of a gentleman tailor, precise and functional, occasionally decorative. If only Mum had been alive long enough to teach me, then perhaps I would be better at it now. Instead, I was afraid of getting it wrong. I remember the electrifying pinpricks more keenly than anything else. Pain shapes the memory. Lawrence asked me about my arm last night, after we had kissed. He felt the ridge of scar tissue and momentarily recoiled. I told him about the stitches. But why did you cut it in the first place? he asked. Why did I cut it in the first place? Like the stabbing of needles. It shaped things for me. When I gave up trying to learn to sew the way Grandad wanted me to, I think he noticed. A couple of days later, he presented me with a doll he'd made from offcuts. Patches of tweed and fawn serge comprised its legs and arms, all sewn together perfectly, with pearlescent shirt buttons for eyes. For when I can't help you, Sylvia, he said, and I thought, who's around to help Grandad? He spoke to customers and tradespeople, but he rarely left the shop or the house. For years I kept that doll, the stitches began to fray, and I couldn't help myself picking at them until the arm opened up along the seam, the cloth peeling apart. Inside, the arm was stuffed with bright shredded tie silk, fractal paisley patterns of gold and wine and silvered blue. All those years the doll held its secrets inside, and then the stitches came apart. How could I explain that to Lawrence? 
I was only twelve when I cut myself with the knife to see if my arm was the same. That moment is a deep slice. It's a torn yard of satin. The edges will always be frayed. Lawrence has confessed so much about himself in group, about his fear of people and what they think about him. So I told him what I thought he'd want to hear. To understand people, I said, or know that they're real and not just like granddad's mannequins upstairs on the shop floor. Amongst the faded carpeting and varnished wood panels, I'd sit on a tall wooden stool and peer over the counter at the men being measured for their suits, their dead eyes staring through me, no more alive than the mannequins. Granddad said not to be scared of them, but they were always there, haunting the shop floor like static ghosts. And so was I, drifting around in the shadows, lost in my immediate world of pins and thread and strips of cut cloth, mostly downstairs. All those hours and days in the half-light of the basement, with the scrape of cloth beneath my knees and against my neck. It was all I could feel. It's always been there. The doctor Grandad took me to see said I was only trying to understand myself when I wanted to know what others were thinking. I could have worked that out on my own. He wanted to prescribe me pills. But as always, I refused. They make me feel like a sponge, soaking up the grit and noise of the world, feeling nothing but wet and heavy inside. When Lawrence's fingers stroked my arm last night, lingering on the scar tissue, it made my heart dance. Even through the numbness of the old wound, I felt some kind of connection with him. Perhaps it was just physical. The functional semaphore of body chemistry. But he must have felt it as well, because after that we kissed again, and stripped each other's clothes off, exploring the creases and folds of our bodies, the patterned leather of life, complete with scars and bruises. I was already asking myself what it meant. Did I love him? What was he thinking? Who are you, Lawrence? I'm still asking myself, this morning, kneeling on the floor and gathering up all the yards of linen. It's starched and rougher than it looks, and the further along I go, the more stains there are, and the sheets feel threadbare. I drag out my shoebox of Grandad's stuff, some of the scraps and oddments I stole from the shop. In the occasional fit of emotion, he would cuddle me and call me his little magpie. 
as I sat there playing with needles and reels of thread. It didn't happen often. As I got older, we became the islands that he told me about, vast, impassable waters between us. If I'd been better at sewing, and he'd taught me how to tailor a suit, I could have been his little apprentice instead. Perhaps, he thought, I'd be more interested in dresses. It's complicated, he'd say, and turn back to his work. In the shoebox, amongst broken pieces of tailor's chalk, crumpled alteration slips, and swatches of cavalry twill and blue herringbone, are reels of strangled thread, wound and rewound, deep underneath everything else, sliding around in the base of the box. Elusive as deep-sea creatures are the last few needles I managed to scavenge from the shop before it closed down. I pinch the thread, sucking the end to a point, and try to thread the needle. It has a large eye, but my hand is shivering. After we had sex, Lawrence lay there for a long time without speaking. Just looking into my eyes, I had to turn away, scared about what I might do next. My heart had been thrashing in my chest, tingling and pulsing between my legs. But the compulsion to know what lay beneath those eyes, to see it spread out before me, was overwhelming after such an intimate act. So I turned away. Surely such intimacy should bring two people closer. "'What's wrong?' he asked. "'Didn't you enjoy it?' "'Yes,' I said, as we lay there, sweat turning cold, breathing hard next to each other, knowing that I must have been able to let go during it, even for just a moment. But almost instantly, my mind had gone somewhere else. It's not that. His hand clasped my shoulder, pulling me gently back. What do you think has been happening? I asked him, hoping he would confess and tell me he's been fully aware of what I've been doing. Perhaps if he'd told me that, it would complete the connection. I'd understand him, and maybe others, too. When? he said. I touched his cheek, slid the tips of my fingers towards his eye socket. When I do this, I slip them in, buried them deep, and move them around, searching. The cloth wound around my fingers, and I held tight. He didn't say anything, just stared around the room, smiling, oblivious. So I pulled. The tip of the cloth poked out of his eye socket, like the white handkerchief Grandad used to have poking out of his suit breast pocket when he dressed up. He always dressed up like that for my birthday. Took me for a meal at some posh restaurant in town, 
where I was scared to even touch the cutlery. I tugged at the twisted corner emerging from his eye and dragged it out. Yard after yard, it kept on coming. In my head I kept telling myself, it's like a birthday party magician's trick. Soon there'll be multicolored crepe scarves, and I'll make them dance in the air, and Lawrence'll laugh. But there was no color, not like the bright silk of Grandad's doll, and it just kept coming, unfolding all over me until the world was just drab, crinkled, itchy cotton, and smelled of hospitals. I walk around the block, breathe the chill morning air. I couldn't make sense of the cloth, so much of it. I always knew it was in there, but never dreamed of how much. I sat there all night surrounded by it, drifting back to the dusty spaces in Grandad's shop basement. Grandad must have found it hard, bringing me up on his own. A man in his sixties, surrounded by fabric and immersed in electric light, knowing little more than the shop he'd spent his life in. Hour after hour, arriving at dawn and working into the evenings. And then he had a little girl foisted upon him. He did his best, though, and in the end it was me looking after him. He closed the shop, almost six years ago. I cried pretty much all day. Within a year, he had a stroke, and they put him in a nursing home. Now he's gone, moldering under the ground in a box, with cloth that he would never have chosen himself. I return to the flat, go inside, and open my bedroom door, half expecting half hoping to find Lawrence in bed, asleep. Instead, the door buffets against a hilly landscape of white sheets. Searching for the stained threadbare end, I gather it all up and start sewing. There's not enough thread. There will never be enough thread. It doesn't even look like Lawrence. I bundle it all together, winding it tight and looping it around my arm. The more I wind it up, the more I can't stop myself from crying. Tears of grief and frustration. I have Lawrence here, completely exposed to me, all of him. Still, I can't see a person not the stitched moments of a life, the first kiss, a touch of bare skin, left alone in the corner of the party, staring at the people. I crush the cloth around me, wrapping it tight. Is this the closest I can get to someone? I unwrap Lawrence from me and start folding. It takes so long but I manage to wind him into a cylindrical roll, just like Grandad's rolls of cloth. What kind of cloth is inside me, stuffing my limbs, wound around my heart? <laughs>
Is it bright tie silk, blood red and torn? I stroke the ridge of the scar tissue on my arm. Remember the blood. In my cupboard are the cardboard templates Grandad used to cut out patterns for suit trousers and jackets. I kept one set. One day I thought I'd make something. I could teach myself. I take Lawrence's roll of cloth and climb into bed with it. On the cusp of dreams I suddenly see him, awkward and gangly at a family Christmas, clutching a superhero costume. He's crying. I can taste the sting of his salty tears. In and out of waking, the Lawrence I always knew was there appears, cutting his legs with a razor blade, painting a swirling landscape with watercolors, talking to himself. Maybe the longer I spend with his cloth, the closer I'll get. I could make a jacket from it, or a gown, something I can wear that's flat against my skin, something close to my heart that knows my secrets. That was Elon Lerman's Unpicking the Stitches, as read by Josie Babin. By day, Josie is a biologist, a happy little cog in the grand machine known as medical research. When not at work or enjoying the great outdoors of San Diego, she can be found at home with her three loving companions, two feline and one human. She records in a tiny bedroom library surrounded by literature and scientific works, as well as a few video game boxes. Thank you, Josie. That will be our show for the evening. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 